are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. All right, so a quick recap of where we are so far in the story, because, you know, we're reading Acts, which is a, a, a story which means every part that we're studying is built on the stuff that came before. So I've been trying to you know, get us up to speed on where we are each sermon before we jump into the, day, into the, the teaching for the day. Uh, where are we at at this point in the story Luke's been telling about the origin of the church, we've seen thousands of Jews so far uh, coming to a belief that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. Even though he was killed which should never happen to a Messiah, and even though he was raised from the dead, which doesn't happen to anyone. But some are being convinced, I mean, complete change in the way they think about how the world works and how God works, and are coming to belief that, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. And we're at this point where there's starting to be pushback and opposition from outside of the movement, But even in the midst of that opposition and the persecution that's to come, the the movement itself has been incredibly united. At least, that is, until the part of the story we're coming to today. Uh, The story of a couple who try to buy their way into influence within the movement. Now, that takes us up to today's teaching, so we're going to jump in here, beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and going all the way through Chapter 5, verse 11. Way back when I was in college, Bible college, I took a week-long class called Church Revitalization. You know, all about how do you help small, struggling churches kind of get some life back into the church and get some momentum going again. I I was part of a a really conservative uh, Baptist denomination that, um, well, you wanted your church to be big enough Uh, that, you know, it could sustain the life of the church, but not so big that people thought that maybe you were compromising on the gospel because the gospel isn't supposed to be attractive. It's supposed to be offensive. And so if you get too many people, then you're probably doing something wrong. But they get it on the other hand, you didn't want it to be so small that you couldn't pay for the building or couldn't afford a a pastor. So it was a real needle they were trying to thread. Uh, But this class uh, was designed to help us, like, hey, what would we do to help smaller churches? Part of the class, we went on a field trip, small town in Iowa, 2,000 people maybe in this, this small town. And there were these two Baptist churches that 20 years ago had been one church. And then something had happened. Uh, I don't remember being told what. Maybe he told, our professor told us the story. But something happened. The church splits into two. And the new church was doing okay 20 years later, but the old church was really struggling. Uh, they were down to the point where they just, like, their average attendance was somewhere between eight and, and ten people on a Sunday. Um, so I guess that would be nine. Their average attendance was nine. <laughs> and the, uh, the newer church, the one that was doing a little bit better, was saying, you know, for the sake of the, the ministry of the gospel in our town, let's see if the church wants to reunite, come back together. And the professor who was teaching this class was kind of part of the discussions, like trying to help them figure out how they would come back together and which building do you use and all of that stuff. Well, the, uh, the leadership at the old, the smaller, struggling church was in favor of this. And so the last remaining uh, board member uh, called a vote and invited the membership. Hey, come out and vote. We're going to vote to rejoin uh, or join again this group that, you know, split off from us 20 years ago. 
Problem was they hadn't updated their membership lists in a long time. So even though only nine people were attending on a Sunday, 40 showed up for the vote and voted no. Because there was something that had happened in the past that hurt them so deeply that even though they weren't involved in the life of this church at all anymore, they still rose up as one and said, no, we are not going to reunite, even if it would be good for the ministry of the gospel in this city. In the world that we live in today, I think we're easily tempted to believe that the biggest threat to the unity of the church is outside of these walls, right? It's a changing world. It's changing laws. It's changing ideas about what's right and what's wrong and, and who's what and what it means to be in power and all of that stuff. But the biggest threat surely is, is outside these walls, right? It's out there in the culture somewhere. But it might be true, like it was back in the days of the stories we're reading, it might be true still today, just like it was back then, that actually the biggest threat to the unity of the church and the mission of the gospel is right inside here with us. Because the biggest threat might just be us. It's that question, that, that thought that makes this passage that we're studying this morning so important for us to understand. Because you heard it read, and I'm sure you had some of the same thoughts that I do every time I read this. Like, Luke, why are you telling us this? It makes Peter sound mean and God sound vindictive. And is what Ananias and Sapphira did, like, really all that bad? Like, death? Really? But here's the thing. The biggest threat to the church's witness to the gospel doesn't come from outside the walls. The biggest threat to the mission of the gospel and the unity of the church comes from right inside here, from prideful manipulation within the church, destroying the unity of the church from the inside. Put it another way, what is inside of us is so much more dangerous than what is outside of us. What is inside here has so much more potential for destroying the unity and the mission of the gospel than anything outside these walls. So on that positive note, let's jump into today's passage. I'll show you what I mean. Now, we're reading from 432 all the way to 5.1, and we could take this passage and break it up into two sections where the last few verses of chapter 4 are one section, and then chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 are another, uh, you know, talking about the summary of the state of the church at this time, and then the Ananias and Sapphira story. But I'm combining them for a couple of reasons. One is that the summary at the end of chapter 4 is a lot like the summary at the end of chapter 2, and I just want to re-preach Pastor Jeff's sermon from a couple of weeks ago. Might have made my prep a little bit easier, but it didn't seem like the right thing to do. Uh, but the second reason is that the, the setup of, hey, here's what the community is like, that setup is hugely important for understanding the Ananias and Sapphira part of the passage. Because we learn at the end of chapter 4 that the, the community, the congregation of followers of Jesus, are experiencing an incredible unity even in the face of opposition uh, from Jewish leaders on the outside. Luke describes the community in, in verse 32 of being of one heart and soul. 
uh, in verse 33, there's great power, great grace on them all. Now, sociologists can appeal to all sorts of in-group and out-group dynamics in order to explain the unity of a group, you know, how groups tend to unify together when there's a common enemy outside of them. But Luke gives the credit to the Holy Spirit, to the Spirit of God. This unity, he's telling us, is, is evidence of the work of the Spirit in the community. A story coming as it does, this summary coming as it does right after verse 31, where we're told that the, the Holy Spirit filled the believers, that individually and as a whole, this community is empowered by and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, united in a common faith with a common purpose. And it's the kind of unity that's described for us far beyond merely the theoretical. Uh, this isn't a group of people who have all put their names on the same statement of faith and called it unity. This is a kind of unity that's showing up in really practical ways, in meals together, in voluntarily taking care of one another, in considering other people's needs more important than your own, uh, in the way the apostles have organized collections in order to monetarily care for those who are in need. Uh, in the way some in the community, those with greater wealth or with, uh, with property, lands, houses, whatever, are, are in the habit of saying, oh, there's a need. Well, I've got some property I can sell. I, I can contribute to that. I could, I could take care of this. See, from the description at the end of chapter 4, we realize life in the community is characterized by these Jewish notions of wholeness, of blessedness, of shalom, that peace with God that leads to peace and flourishing with one another. And this, if we know our Old Testament, this is what the people of Israel were always supposed to look like. A Jewish person reading or hearing this description would hear echoes of Deuteronomy 15 in the background when God says, like, hey, I'm going to lead you into the promised land, and once you're there, you are going to be so blessed that there won't need to be a needy person among you. There'll be so much to share that when the people of God are obedient to God, the blessing just overflows into a life like this. It seemed to have been an ideal in the Old Testament, always kind of put out there of someday maybe we'll achieve it, and now it's happened in the new Jesus movement. This kind of life of flourishing together. But it wouldn't resonate just with a Jewish audience. A Greek audience would resonate with this description as well. There's a Greek ideal at the time that a properly ordered society leads or lends itself towards this kind of ideal. There's a proverb, friends have all things in common. It's like the ancient Greek equivalent of mikasa sukasa, right? What's yours is mine, or what's, no, what's mine is yours. Don't want to get that backwards. What's mine is yours. We can share this together. See, this is a community. They don't think of themselves as a collection of people, but as a congregation united together. They are not friends, they're family, which is significant to describe them as family. This is in a time when, no, your family is your family, and you stay loyal to your family. They're saying, hey, there's a bigger story that is uniting us together in family-type relationships that call on us to sacrifice for one another in the same way I would for a blood relative. We are family. 
And the way Luke is telling these stories, the order in which he's putting, he's communicating to us very clearly that the, this is all a result of the indwelling and the empowering presence of the Spirit in the people, in the community, being filled with the Spirit of God. And it's into this kind of community of wholeness, this congregation of shalom, into this community walk, Ananias and Sapphira, who, as we'll come to find out, are filled with something very different than the Holy Spirit. But Luke doesn't introduce them in a vacuum. Before they come on the scene, he introduces us to another person, someone who will come to have a much larger role in the later chapters of Acts, a guy named Barnabas. Of course, his real name is Joseph, but he's nicknamed Barnabas because he's such a a powerful communicator. Luke translates the Aramaic nickname Barnabas for us into uh, into Greek, son of encouragement, Um, which is not, it's not the soft kind of encouragement that you think of when you think of like a soccer coach for an eight and under girls team, where you're like, come on guys, you can do it, right? This is more the encouragement you might get from a drill sergeant, It's like, all right, come on, guys. You are going to do this. right? Barnabas gets this nickname because he is an effective and a powerful communicator. He's exhorting and encouraging people to live in the kingdom of God with Jesus as the Messiah. Now, his background, we don't know too much about him, except that he hasn't done too poorly for himself. He's wealthy enough to be able to afford to sell off a, a field a bit of land and give the proceeds to the apostles to use for caring for those who have need. And as such, being introduced here and then not coming up at all in the story again until later, he's being introduced here to show us, hey, this is what, this is what it looks like when someone serves the unity of the community at expense of themselves. This is what it looks like when somebody gives up something of their own for the sake of the whole community. Not so Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, in that sense, is kind of a foil for them, showing the opposite of it. Let's take a look at chapter 5, verse 1. Luke introduces these two new characters pretty simply, but a man named Ananias, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, in, in English, it it doesn't really clearly come across that Ananias and Sapphira might be doing anything wrong, especially because from the verses that precede these, we know that not everyone who had property sold it. It wasn't compulsory uh, that everyone who had anything had to get rid of it and give the money to the apostles. Not everyone who had property sold it. Not those who had property and sold it, not all of them sold all of their property, And it wasn't a requirement that if you sold property and gave some of the proceeds to the church, you weren't required to give all of it. Uh, That was up to you. That was your choice. But the problem is in that little verb, kept back, where it says Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, kept back for himself some of the proceeds. We could translate the, uh, the sense of the Greek there with a little more punch if we translate it something like, Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, skimmed a little bit off the top for himself or secreted away some of the proceeds to keep them for himself. He's 
presenting himself as if he's giving the full gift when he's actually only giving part of it. And so as the story starts, even with the the way they're described, we get this sense, we're given this heads up that whatever gift Ananias and Sapphira are about to give, it's already tainted by a desire to present a portion of the sale as if it's the whole sale. I sold this land for 150, uh, but we don't need to tell everybody that. We're going to give 100 and say it's the whole thing. Now, Luke's a great uh, storyteller. He doesn't have to narrate every single step of the story for us. And so we get this introduction, and then immediately we get Peter's uh, response to Ananias laying the gift at his feet, Uh, which, by the way, laid it at the apostles' feet is just a colloquial way of saying donated it. Um, It's just saying, hey, I'm I'm submitting these funds to your authority. You can do with them what what you wish. It's like putting uh, a check in the box or something like that. You're just donating it to to the cause. Uh, But as Ananias gives this gift, we're supposed to assume or infer from the way Luke tells the story that he presents it in a somewhat ostentatious way. Somehow he communicates to Peter that I've sold this land. God has blessed me abundantly. And for the sake of those who have less, who have not been blessed as I have, I sold this property and I want to give you the full proceeds of what I made. Somehow this is coming across uh, this way, but, but Peter is given a prophetic insight uh, into what's really going on. And so he confronts Ananias with a series of five just rapid-fire questions, one after another, that, that show the seriousness of what Ananias is trying to do. Uh, they come real fast in verse 3, where he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Ananias, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? Ananias, why have, you and your, why have you skimmed some off of the top and kept it for yourself? Why didn't you realize it was all your money anyway to do whatever you wanted with it? Because why did you let your heart plan this deceit? Why did you let yourself go down this road? Because Peter says, and he goes on, It says, when you lie to the community that is formed by and enlivened by the Spirit of God, you aren't lying to just a group of people. You're not just lying to the leaders or lying to the people. You're lying to the Spirit of God himself. You're trying to deceive God himself. So Peter says, you have not lied to men. You haven't lied to people. You've lied, lied to God. Now, we're not told why Ananias and Sapphira contrived together to present this doctored gift. We're not totally sure about their motivation. It could have been that they were hoping to to capitalize on the gift to curry favor with the apostles. Oh, this is how you get in good with the uppity-ups. You just give a big financial donation. And if they think we gave it all, I mean, they're going to like it even more. Maybe, potentially, this is how they thought they'd buy their way into a leadership role. This is how we get influence in this new community. Or this is how we show that we're seriously, we want to be part of this group. Maybe a well-placed donation will open doors for them, get them them a place within the social standing. Maybe they thought that by, by giving a donation, they were going to get their names up on a plaque on the wall 
you know, said, this relief effort brought to you by Ananias and Sapphira Incorporated. Maybe they were not actually believers or followers of Jesus, but sympathetic to this movement and what they saw happening there and thought, you know, if we align ourselves with these guys, no matter which way it goes, like, we're going to end up okay. But we don't know what's going on in the motivation other than we know that they, they had a gift that was less than what they, they made it out to be and wanted to be seen, to be known, to be understood as being more virtuous than they really were, more pious than they really were, more committed, um, you know, more all in than they really were. They wanted to get all the benefits of a big old grand gift and gesture with as little cost as possible. You know, you want to put in as little as you can to get as much out of it as you can. And that's what they were trying to do. But it's this... It's exactly this spirit of disunity, of wanting to use the people around them to elevate themselves that's so toxic to the young church. For someone to buy their way into leadership or into influence in order to fulfill their desire to be recognized or a desire to be you know, pointed out as good, as virtuous, as pious. Or maybe they just had to be in control of something, and this is how they thought they were going to do it. Whatever the motivation, their action is not going to end well for the unity of the church, the unity of this movement. Because what happens inside the walls of the congregation, what happens inside of our group, What happens inside of us has so much more potential to destroy the mission and the witness of the gospel than anything going on out there. What's inside us is far more dangerous, which is why the consequences of their actions seem to be so much greater than the offense would merit. But this is about the unity of the church. Now, whatever the motivation was for Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, it didn't go well for them, for either of them. Uh, as one scholar puts it, the moment Ananias's heart is laid bare, his heart gives out. Whether he dies of natural causes, you know, some will argue and say, oh, it was probably shock at having his public deception so, you know, publicly outed. Uh, or whether God intervenes supernaturally to cause his death. Either way, the timing is pretty clear that his death should be understood as God's judgment. But as far as the crowd around them is concerned, all of those that may have been gathered around at Solomon's portico where we think all this was happening, as far as that crowd is concerned, they're watching a generous and wealthy man meaning absolutely, 100%, no doubt about it, blessed by God. Here's a guy that you know just by looking at him that he has been blessed by God. And the crowd is seeing this guy who obviously has God's favor come and give an extravagant gift and be struck dead in the very act of it, just as it's happening. And so they react, Luke tells us, with great fear. Verse 5, and great fear came upon all who heard it. 
great fear. This is something beyond just the reverent awe of God. More than just the usual that you think of when you think of like fear God. Uh, this is more of a, whoa, if this could happen to Ananias, like this could happen to anyone. This could happen to me. So this is, this is like fear and also kind of an impetus towards self-examination. Now, Luke goes on to tell us what happens. Of course, at the moment, Ananias is struck dead. Some within the congregation, the, the young men collect the body and unceremoniously bury him. Someone after first hour came and told me that kids these days have it so much easier in church. They don't even have to worry about carrying out dead bodies. <laughs> I was like, I think that's a good thing. Uh, but these young men, whoever they were, uh, you know, a group that's, that's ready to do whatever's asked of them, they collect the body and they unceremoniously bury him. And I say that word intentionally because in the Jewish way of respecting the dead, there's a lot of ceremony involved. So for these guys to wrap him up, take him out, bury him, and be all done and back within three hours means this guy did not get your normal burial. There was no procession of mourning. There was no wailing. There was no, like, let's respect this guy. There was the, I don't even want to touch this because of the way he died thing. I mean, they don't even take the time to tell his closest living relative, his wife, that he's dead. It's just like, we got to get this body out of here. And so they're on their way back about three hours later when Ananias' wife, Sapphira, shows up. And she shows up, I think, walking into the congregation with an expectation of being greeted as a benefactor, being lauded and appreciated. They wouldn't have had time yet to get the plaque done, but I think she knew where it was going to go on the wall. So she walks in and is first shocked by not seeing her husband sitting in a place of honor next to Peter, and then is even more shocked when Peter confronts her with, a, with what kind of sounds like a rude question. Hey, tell me, did you sell the land for such and such an amount? It's a confrontation of a question, of course, but it's not just a confrontation. It's also an opportunity for Sapphira to confess. It's an opportunity to repent, and she could have said, uh, no, we, we actually sold it for much more than that. Uh, but she doesn't. She doubles down on the lie. Yeah, that's exactly, no, that's exactly right. And so Peter again asks another question. Well, then how is it? How is it that you and your husband have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? How could you come to this point? Because test here is the word for intentionally disobeying God in order to see if God's really serious and if he's going to react or not. It's the same word you use when, you know, your kids are driving you nuts because they're pushing all of your buttons and you're like, they are, you are testing me, right? You're pushing me to the edge to see if I'm going to respond. How is it that the two of you could get to the point where you were willing to conspire together to test the Spirit of God and see if maybe you couldn't get away with something that would make you seem better than you really are. See, Peter doesn't, in asking that question, he doesn't condemn Sapphira to death. He doesn't say, death be on you because of this. But he does utter a prophecy, a prophetic statement that both reveals that Ananias is dead. This is the first she's heard of it. And also predicts that the same people that buried him are going to bury her. And in great, you know, storytelling irony, 
The husband and wife who shared the same deception now share the same fate. Again, the scholars debate, well, did she die of shock? You know, all of a sudden, everyone knowing that, that they'd done this, or did God supernaturally strike her dead? Really doesn't matter uh, which way it was, because the point is the timing clearly shows this is God's judgment. This is God's judgment on those within this brand new church movement that are sowing disunity through the exaltation of themselves at the expense of the community. Because again, with a mission and a witness on the line, with a a witness to the gospel at stake, what is most dangerous to the mission of the church is not outside the walls, it's inside. The, the biggest potential damage to the gospel comes from inside the church, not outside the church. So to wrap up the story, Luke tells us again, repeats the phrase, great fear falls on the congregation of believers. Uh, here, called the church for the first time in Acts. Great fear falls on the church. But not just the church, not just these who are going, man, if if somebody is obviously blessed as Ananias can, can be struck down by God, like, what about me? I, this could happen to anyone. It's not just on those inside the church, but even those outside the church, outside of the Jesus movement, are also filled with fear. Uh, to the point where, in the verses to come, Luke says that those who were kind of sympathetic towards the movement, like, I don't know if I agree with them, but they're doing a lot of good things, you know, in Jerusalem. Those who were sympathetic are like, hands off. I don't want to get anywhere near this group. Only those who are absolutely convinced that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah are willing to align themselves with this movement after this story of Ananias and Sapphira. Great fear falls not just on those outside the church, but those inside the church, which I think is hugely instructive for how we understand this passage for us today. You know, it's easy to get confused about what this story is about. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, clearly about the consequences of lying to church leadership. Okay, not really. Clearly about making sure you accurately report your donations and that what you say to the IRS lines up with what you're actually giving to the church, right? Clear takeaway. No. And it's not even about though some have interpreted this way, it's not even about a vindictive God who severely punishes even the most minor of infractions in his new church. No, this is about the unity of the church witnessing to the reality of what life in the kingdom of Jesus looks like. Throughout the story, Luke is clear about what's happening. The church is unified, united because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is indwelling and empowering the community, the believers as a whole. Just as he continues to do in the church today, as the gift of the Spirit in each of us and in all of us. But Peter says of Ananias and Sapphira that they are not filled with the Spirit, they are filled with the Satan. The personification of evil. Uh, the adversary, the accuser, the spirit of, of self-exaltation, the, the spirit of exploitation. That doesn't let them off the hook because he goes on to say, you have embraced this plan within your own hearts. 
But he says, you Ananias and Sapphira, you have given yourselves over to the, the kind of force of evil that destroys, that, that lifts up the self at the expense of everyone else. That's why this is so serious. You think you came in here and just told a lie to a couple of people, but you told a lie to a community that was brought together and given life by the Holy Spirit. If you're going to lie to us, you're lying to God. That's why Peter accuses them of testing the Spirit, blatantly ignoring the, the blessing, the wholeness, the shalom of the community, of the life of this community in the kingdom of Jesus, to see if they can get away with it, to use their wealth, a good gift from God, to try to grab power in the kingdom of God, or, or use their wealth to elevate themselves. Or use the good gifts God's given them in order to get more of what God hasn't given them. It's not the way it works. So, what can we learn from a story like this that might impact how we think about the church in our world, like today? Well, in the flow of Luke's story of the early church, it's pretty clear that he wants us to see that the biggest threat to the witness and the mission of the gospel doesn't come from outside opposition or persecution. Not at all. When they're opposed from the outside, they pray for boldness. When they're arrested and beaten, they're like, this is great. We never thought we would be worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. The biggest threat to the church's witness for the gospel doesn't come from outside the walls. It comes from the prideful manipulation of those of us inside of the walls. To put it another way, the, the biggest danger to the, the unity of the church and the mission of the gospel is not out there, it's in here. Actually, it's in here. It's not out there in someone else, it's in here, it's in us, it's, it's, in, it's in me. So a story like this should make us pause and, and ask the question, so what is inside of the spirit of the church, faith church, 91st and college, 2023? Spirit of unity, a spirit of division, what's inside of us? Because the spirit of unity in the early church shows up in caring for one another, giving up of what you have and what you own, giving over control of your time and your resources on behalf of those around you in need, which, praise God, I see a ton of at faith. In, in our groups, the community groups, in, in benevolence, in the giving that, that so many of us are involved in, in trying to make sure we meet the needs within the church and those around us. There is a spirit, I, I believe there is a spirit of unity at faith. And praise God, but we have to keep asking ourselves, are we still building that spirit of unity? Or is what we're doing, is what I'm doing actually taking away from it? Because we're forming communities of wholeness and blessing and shalom. or attempting to form these communities in our groups, in our classes, uh, in our leadership teams, in our ministry teams. And that's us as a whole, but we also have an individual responsibility. Maybe you're wondering, well, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't think I've lied to the Holy Spirit recently, which is good. But we have to ask ourselves, you know, in my interaction with the church and my, my groups and the things I'm part of, in my interaction with the church, have, have I, when has the, the spirit of selfishness in me kind of reared its ugly head where I have to be right? The decision has to go my way. 
I have to be the one who directs this thing, guides this thing, leads this thing, runs this thing, rules this thing. When has the spirit of self-glorification showed up in in the way I live the life of Jesus in this congregation? A story like this should give us pause, maybe even great fear, to use the word Luke uses of it. At the very least, a spirit of self-examination. Because if it's true that, that, that what's inside is far more dangerous than what's outside, that the biggest risk to the unity and the mission of the gospel is inside, that means the greatest potential to destroy the unity of the church is actually inside of me and inside each of you. The last time I checked, those two churches never reunited. The old members of the original church couldn't let go of their hurt. Eventually, you know, most passed away. The church slowly dwindled until it died. And the other church continued to struggle along. Part of the reason that our class went and visited these two churches was because it was such a clear picture of what division inside of a church does to the mission of the gospel in that town. Small towns in Iowa, everybody knows everybody. And when two churches with absolutely identical statements of faith who would say we believe all the exact same things could not get along with one another, the rest of the town around kind of looked at him and was like, so does Christianity have anything to offer? If two groups of people who agree on absolutely everything can't worship in the same room together, this is not a very uh, encouraging passage. At least not if by encouraging you were thinking, eight and under soccer coach saying, you can do this. This kind of passage is more the encouragement of a drill sergeant saying, guys, pay attention. It's easy to talk about how bad everything is out there, but the biggest threat to the unity of the church and the mission of the gospel through faith church lies inside the hearts of each and every one of us myself included, and probably because of my position, myself first of all. After reading a story like this, there's really only one thing we can do, and it's just to pray, Lord, help us. Make us more like Jesus. So let's pray. And we will pray just that, Lord, help us. We are people who are fallen, and you have called us together through your love for us, calling out of us and echoing love back for you. We are a congregation of those who have been drawn together because of our mutual love for Jesus, and yet we are still so fallen and so prone to hurting one another, to demanding our own way, to trying to get what we want, to use the good things you've given us, Lord, to elevate ourselves, to to put ourselves above everyone else, or to make sure that what we want is what happens. Father, we've looked inside and and 
the line separating good and evil is running right through the hearts of each and every one of us. And we have not figured out how to remove the part of us that lends toward evil. And so we ask that you would continue to transform us. Father, help us. Make us more like Jesus. Give us an awareness of our need for you. Day after day after day, as we gather together, as we interact with one another, would you please put to death within us the sinfulness and the selfishness and the spirit of the adversary, the accuser, that we would live out instead the spirit of the risen Jesus. And that this church, because of the unity given to us by the spirit, would powerfully work the ministry of the gospel in Indianapolis and beyond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.